thank you so much. I love what I do. I have always wanted to be a sculptor. We live in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. My wife and I, Suzanne, and we're very, very thrilled to come here this evening to speak to you all about what we've done recently and what's coming up in the near future. We all know what's happening with monumentation out there around the country, especially the Confederate monuments that have been torn down, defaced, all that sort of thing, and other monuments as well. So we're going to get into a lot of this tonight, and we're going to talk about a lot of things that what a sculptor does to make a living and how the approach is put in place from day one when you're in the fourth grade. It's rather fascinating, and uh, it's quite misunderstood by the family. <laughs> Again, I'm Gary Castile, and I have sculpted my entire life. Always wanted to be a sculptor. Why is that? Very simple. When I was a young boy growing up in the hollows of West Virginia, I'm the baby of the family, six brothers and a sister. My daddy, all my uncles, my grandpap, my brothers, and my sister. She married a coal miner, and everyone else in the family were coal miners. Preston County, West Virginia, that's how they made their money, mining coal. The entire county today, as well as the state of West Virginia, is a welfare state. Why is that? Simple. The EPA stepped in and said, we don't do that anymore. That being said, the one thing you'll learn about Gary Castile, and this is true about mountaineers, West Virginians, they tend to be very direct, very honest, straightforward, to the point of upsetting you at times, but you won't hear a lie. And so that's the good part. What you're going to hear this evening is going to be some stories. I tend to be a good storyteller, and I've been told that many times. The sculpting business, especially if you are a historical sculptor, creates a lot of political uprises, questions, we'll say disagreements along the way before that piece that you're commissioned to do ever gets erected, if in fact it does. I have always loved history, so I put the two together, art and history. I graduated from high school, and my daddy said, you come down to the mines, I'll get you a job. I said, daddy, there ain't enough room in that mine for me. I want to be a sculptor. He said, what is that? My daddy had a third grade education. He could barely write his name. He was born in 1910. But I respect my daddy for one reason. He was a hard worker. And he got it done. That is enough right there. Well, I graduated from high school. And a lot of my teachers in high school said, you need to go to art school. I didn't have any money to go to art school. And the government wasn't paying for those schools like they are today. 
So I said, where are those schools? And they said, well, there's actually two that you should go to. One is the Rhode Island School of Design, Ridsey, or the Chicago School of Art. I didn't really have a passion for Chicago for some reason. I'm not sure why to this day. So I thought, I'll go to Ridsey. I packed a bag, threw some things into it, and I started thumbing my way to Rhode Island out of Preston County, West Virginia. Now, this is before the interstates and all that sort of thing. My mama was crying when I walked out the door. I get to Ridsey, and I walk in, and I say, I'm here. What do I need to do to go to school? And that's when I found out I had less money than I thought. I think I had $5 in my pocket at that day. The woman at the counter says, you need to go down to the art department. We have two sculptors down there who have been working on some pieces here within the area, doing some restoration and doing a little teaching here in the school. You should talk to them and see what you can do before you go. I went down and met Giovanni Federico Pucci from Pietrasanta, Italy, northwest of Florence. They were in their 40s, and I was 18. I showed them a couple of things that I'd done, and we clicked like old farm boys. Before the day was over, they said, stick around. You can stay in the studio with us. We've got about another month and a half, and we'll see how it goes. At the end of that time, they had gotten my passport, and they offered me a deal. They said, if you want to go back to Italy with us, come on. We'll cover you. We didn't have a phone at home. I sat down and wrote a letter to my mama, and I said, I'm going to Italy. I'll see you when I get back. <laughs> How many parents here would like to receive that one from their kids? I went with the boys over to Florence. I spent a year with them. Visa runs out, and I had to come back. Now, the family, the Pucci family, you must remember, had been cutting marble since the time of Michelangelo, the 1500s. They had constant papal commissions all through those years. They were never called sculptors. America has a great affinity to titles. We love to have a title. In Europe, especially in Italy, if you have a sculptor, he is a stonecutter. In America, a stonecutter is the man who builds your foundation or your fence out back around the garden. That's the difference. These folks I worked with for that year, I became part of the family. I lived with them. I ate with them. I picked the eggs out of the chicken house and learned how to use those tools. I came back and Vietnam was on, no doubt about it, and the draft was there. Well, I decided to put my time in and retire in Italy. I wanted to move to Italy. I put my time in, I had a couple of wounds, and was sent home. I came back and I started working other places, foundries, that sort of thing, and I went back to Italy. I went back to Italy 
numerous times working with them to strengthen my abilities. And I would come back home and I would start to reach out and try to build that following. The art business is nothing like any other business in the world. You can have art degrees out the wazoo. You can have them plastered on the wall. And it means nothing except you paid the bill. Doesn't mean you can sell your art. Doesn't mean you'll have a following. It doesn't mean you have respect. It means you paid the bill. You have to work and earn that, and you have to learn along the way to get that following. And that is exactly what I did. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, period. Once you get it, life is wonderful, hopefully. <laughs> if you don't, keep your job at Walmart. It's handy. Now, I read a study a few years back, and it said very clearly that of the individuals who go to school to get an art degree, to be a qualified artist, not an art teacher, but a fine artist. 1% make it. 1%. I don't have a degree, never tried, and yet I've had professors come to me and say, I'd give it all away to be you because that took the easy way out. I started teaching art when I wanted to become a real artist. Now, I'm not bragging, I'm saying this is the art world. Now we're going to move into the historical aspect of art and those commissions. What happens now when you're commissioned to do a piece and all of a sudden it becomes very controversial? You've got people who will throw rocks at you and the other people want to write you a check. <laughs> so it gets rather interesting. I do a lot of research on my work, lots of research. Sometimes the research is even more interesting than the projects itself. I'll be dealing with the National Park Service, a corporation, an individual, the Yankee government. It doesn't matter. You have those issues that you have to deal with as you go along the way. So. You have to deal with that, and you have to make it work. If you don't, it never goes up. I've had some interesting projects in my life, and I continue to receive those interesting projects. And so we'll see where they go along the way. The one project that I brought with me this evening was the General James Longstreet Monument that you see here on the front with the paintings or the photographs. The General James Longstreet came to me in 1992 or three along in there. 
The individuals who wanted to erect General James Longstreet were from North Carolina, Sanford, North Carolina. In fact, it was a Sons of Confederate Veterans group. There were no monuments to General James Longstreet to that point, not one, anywhere. And yet, he was second in command at Gettysburg. James Longstreet had a problem after the war, as we all know. <laughs> I said he was like a baseball player, three strikes are out. One, he questioned Robert E. Lee at Gettysburg. Two, he married a Catholic, <laughs> a young Catholic. <laughs> three, the war is over, he goes home and he did exactly as Robert E. Lee said to do. And that was to get back into society and let's pull the country together. He took a job under President Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> the problems begin. James Longstreet was basically swept under the rug by the South at that point, no doubt about it. He was a good general, he was a good man, he was a good military individual. There's no doubt about it. But those were the issues. Well, there were no monuments to General Longstreet. And so they came to me and they said, we want to erect him at Gettysburg. And I thought, what better location? Second in command and certainly Gettysburg being the high point of the Confederate move. We prepared to have a meeting with the National Park Service. The superintendent at the time was Jose Cisneros. Anyone here know Jose? Okay. Excuse me, Jose couldn't find his way to the bathroom. <laughs> Jose was superintendent at Gettysburg. He was moved up from the southwest or someplace. I, yeah. He was a bookkeeper. He never knew there was a battle at Gettysburg. And we go in to sit down, the boys from North Carolina and myself, we sat down, and he said, what's this meeting about? And we said, we want to put James Longstreet at Gettysburg. He pounds the table and says, we don't want him. Now, why is that? Why would they say, we don't want him? When you have to understand one thing, if you do the research, at Gettysburg, every equestrian on the field is a Union general, except the Virginia Monument, Robert E. Lee, but not dedicated to Robert E. Lee to the state of Virginia. The other monuments were dedicated to those Union generals, which in fact was against the rules of the original, well, we'll call it the National Park Service, but it was actually run by the military at that time. They would not allow individual monuments to particular officers. There were to only be monuments to regiments. Now, that's the way it is in Vicksburg, in fact. But here they are. There's numbers of them on the field in Gettysburg. We're saying, wait a minute, you've got these Union generals here. Why is this? We don't want him. We don't want him. <laughs> Fine. 
The boys from North Carolina walked away. They were stomping. Now, we had done our homework. Number one, Helen Longstreet, the wife, the second wife of General James Longstreet. This is the younger Catholic <laughs> uh, that he married. Helen Longstreet was around in World War II. She was much younger than the general. Helen Longstreet, in the 1930s, had approached the military because they controlled Gettysburg at the time to erect a monument to her husband, and they agreed. She actually commissioned a piece from a well-known sculptor of the day from up in Connecticut. The model was designed, produced. We knew exactly what it was going to be. If you all have seen the Virginia State Monument at Gettysburg, well, the original Longstreet was double that size. It would have been twice as high. Well, what occurred was this, rather amazing. The United States government gave her military officers, and she trained the country raising funds with those military officers. Those funds were maintained by the organization. And when World War II came along, with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, she took all of those funds and donated them to the United States government in honor of her husband. That is why there was never a monument at Gettysburg. Gettysburg has the monument model that was originally done, and it's in the bowels of the museum up there hidden away. Well, the boys go back to North Carolina, and I was doing research on what Helen Longstreet had done, and the boys picked up the phone and made a phone call. Now, there's a few of us in the room that's got my collar hair will recognize the name. Uncle Jesse. Jesse Helms. I hear the chuckles. <laughs> when Jesse Helms burped, somebody wrote the check. Okay. They called Uncle Jesse and said, we have a problem. 30 days later, we have a meeting in Gettysburg. Jose, gone. John Latchar replaces him. The first word out of John's mouth is, where would you like to put him? Why is that? Because who was on the funding committee for the National Park Service within the government? Uncle Jesse. <laughs> That's how you deal with the Yankee government. <laughs> so that being said, that particular monument got underway. They raised funds for five years and it was nickel and dime. There was no monies from the state, from the government, the National Park Service, or large corporations. It was nickel and dime all the way through, and they raised it. The monument was sculpted, cast, put in place, dedicated July 4th, 1998. 
soon to be 20 years. And one of the largest, if not the largest, dedication attendance ever on the park. Now, the National Park Service has told me many, many times it is the most photographed monument on the park. I don't know how they can prove that. I don't ask. <laughs> My question is, is, okay, if it's the second most photographed monument on the park, who's number one? Want to guess? Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee. Thank you. <laughs> and I told him I would accept that. But that being said, uh, again, we don't know if we can prove that or not. I just find it fascinating that we've been told that information. That piece today is standing in the park, on the ground, no pedestal, just like I wanted, just like the National Park Service wanted. No pedestal simply because, one, the pedestal would have doubled the cost of the project. Two, the Park Service didn't want a pedestal because of maintenance cost. And that's why it's not there. Other question is the raised hoof. Now, I'm sure almost everybody in the room has heard the theory of the raised hoof. It's a real problem. When I designed the piece, we had put in 12 different designs Every one of them was rejected. Finally, we're having some lunch. I'm sitting at the table. I took a napkin. I sketched out what you see on the battlefield today. I threw it over to John, and John looked at it, and he goes, I'll buy it. That's what you see today. John, by the way, was in the same unit I was in in Vietnam. But <laughs> didn't know that till later. But that particular piece then with the raised hoof I started getting a lot of, uh, well, phone calls, because emails weren't in at that time, phone calls and knocks on my door the whole nine yards about that raised hoof. It got so bad that I even got a phone call from the London Times wanting to know, why did you raise the hoof? And I said, it's very simple. I raised it because the horse was in action. That's all it was. He's moving forward, and Pete's pulling back on, on the reins, and, you know, all the feet are in motion. Oh, okay. Because the theory goes, one hoof up, they've been wounded. Two hooves up, they've been killed. My theory is three hooves up, they're retreating like hell. So the deal is, it has nothing to do with that. And I've told many, many people over the years, I was trained to cut marble with a family who have been cutting for 500 years. I never heard that rule. So I don't think there's any out there. <laughs> the size of the horse, forget it, it's not too small. I used a model. The model was Summer. She lived on the Mamasburg Road. She was half Belgian, half quarter horse. Big horse, big hoof. You got to remember James Longstreet, well over six feet tall, and in his prime weighed 300 pounds almost. Big guy. And so with the way the horse is being pulled back, rear of the horse coming down, and the size of Longstreet, it's a bit of an optical illusion because it's on the ground. If it would have been up off the ground on a pedestal, it would have made a big difference. Now, one point I'd like to make, 
the one difference between the General James Longstreet Monument on the ground and those Union General equestrians up on the pedestal is that you can always tell if it's a stud or a mare up on the pedestal. <laughs> you can't tell that with Longstreet. See? So that's, that's the main difference here. All right, that piece, there is one ton of clay in the original, if you look at that one ton of clay that was sculpted in place. The bronze, which is one quarter inch thick, weighs one ton. Rather interesting. And so myself and two assistants put together the armature inside that clay, which is a stick figure. And then from that, we start packing on the clay. We packed clay for a month and a half. And then the assistants go away, and I sculpted for another three months to produce what you see in this photograph. Now, I'll give you the steps of what it takes to produce a bronze figure, whether it's an equestrian, a life-size standing figure, or a little guy like this. It's always the same. Got to remember one thing. Nothing has changed in the production of bronze figures since the time of Christ. Nothing except the way they melt the bronze and the molds. Originally, the molds were plaster. Today, they're rubber. They melted bronze back then with charcoal. Today, it's gas, it's electric, it can be anything. So everything else is the same. Now we're gonna go through these steps and I'm gonna take it real slow. The reason you have the book that I brought along and gave to you all is if you read that, you'll better understand what you go through to produce a piece of bronze. All the painters are my friends, Don Frioni, the Keith Rocco's, I've known them for years. They're all my friends. They keep asking the same question. Why do you do this, Gary? It's so much work. Because I love it. And you do a painting and you want to print. All right, let's go through the steps. You buy the canvas, you do the research, you do the drawing, you do the painting. We take it over here, we take a picture of it. We take that picture, we load it into the computer, we have the press over here, we hit the button. I'll give you 500 prints in 10 minutes. All right, now I'm gonna tell you what it takes to produce one of these. If you want 500 of these, the steps I'm gonna go through, you will do every time. There is no button to push. <laughs> First, you sculpt the piece. You build that armature, you pack that clay on, and you sculpt it out. Now you have the finished piece as you wish to see it. Then you need to produce the molds. The molds are in rubber and you need to do it in pieces. 
because you can only cast X number of pounds of bronze for each piece that you have. If you have a 50-pound pot, then a section that size of that piece will be the first mold. So of a life-size figure, of a standing figure, you're going to have probably eight to 10 pieces. The Longstreet had close to 15. You take 10 shims and you start pushing into it and you start creating those areas. Then you mix up the rubber and you paint the rubber on and you paint it on and you paint it on until the rubber is about a quarter of an inch thick. Once that's done and dry, you back it up with a plastic or a plastor so that you can pull that rubber off and lay it into that solid backing. So what you have is the sculpture itself is the positive. The rubber that you pull off of it is the negative. Now you will melt the wax and you start brushing in the wax into that rubber over and over until you get a quarter inch thick of wax. Once that's done and it cools, you pull that out. Clean up the edges, retouch the wax, and then you will attach what they call gates and risers, which are tubes about an inch in diameter that are wax, and it'll eventually be where the bronze goes in and the air comes out. You attach those rods, and then you take that and you dip it into liquid ceramic. And then you take it out and you sprinkle dry ceramic over top of that, back and forth and back and forth until the entire piece of wax is encrusted with about an inch of that ceramic shell. That's done, it dries. Now we're talking days and days and days and weeks here. Once that dries, you take that into the melt-out room. You turn it upside down with where the rods are pointing down and you melt out the wax. That's the lost wax process that was first brought to this country by Frederick Remington around the turn of the century in 1900. You melt out the wax, you melt the bronze down to 2,000 degrees, turn that mold over, you pour the bronze in, it cools for a couple of days, you crack off that shell, and here's this ugly casting laying in front of you. You've got to clean it up, grind off the edges, cut the gauge and risers off of it, and that's one piece you've got another eight to 10 or 15 to go. You do all those pieces and then you put them together and you tack weld them. And then you totally weld where they come together, the lines. Once that's all done, then you start grinding those welds, cleaning them up, polishing, and making it match the sculptor's marks. 
so that it looks just like the clay itself. That being all done, then you can sandblast it or polish it, and you're ready to put the collar on, which is an acid and heat, or what they call the patina, and you can make it red, white, and blue if you want. So you put that on, and then you cover that with a wax, with a torch, and paint the wax on. Now it's ready to be erected. If there's a pedestal, you've been working with the stone supplier. You've got to put the foundations in. If it's on a national park, you've got to do the dig and, a, and an archaeological find to see if there's anything else there. It goes and it goes and it goes. The whole time, you're working with the newspapers and those people who don't wish to see it go up, and they're calling you in the middle of the night and cursing you. So, now it's all ready to go. You erect it, and you're ready for dedication day. How long does it take to do all that? A single figure standing doing nothing, absolute minimum, one year to a year and a half. If it's a larger project, other things are going on, it could go on for years. I've got projects that would last a year, I've had projects that would last five. It really depends on what it is. Now think about that food chain and what it takes for all of those people in that food chain. No one's pushed a button yet. They've all worked very hard. They're all artists in their own right. That's why I have always said that sculpting is a very humbling art because you will work for months to create an art piece, and you're going to hand it off to this line of people, and you hope to get back what you did in bronze. Once again, 500 prints, hit the button. 500 of these, that's the process, 500 times. Now you understand why sculpture in city parks, national parks, private collections. When you talk $150,000, it's nothing. Now, you're all aware, you're close to DC. World War I has a memorial, and they are adding to that. Now, I think it's to the tune of 30 million, is that right? 40, yeah, 40 some million dollars. 40 some million dollars. They're adding 30 figures to it. Where is it being done? I'm going to get extremely political right now. Where is that work being done? The United States of America, World War I. New Zealand. What is it doing in New Zealand? Come on, people. This is the United States of America, World War I, New Zealand. A lot of pieces in D.C. over the past 20 years have been produced outside the country. That's disgusting. I'm sorry, that is pathetically disgusting. All right? 
I have been approached a number of times to do pieces around this country, and we were talking about it on the table over here at dinner time, and have been flatly, flatly denied by the United States government to put it up on their property. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because, again, if you're a sculptor and this is your living and you are producing a piece of art that is true and honest, what's the problem? It's very simple. They don't want the story told. And so the politics start to play heavily with various projects. Other projects, not a problem whatsoever. We did one recently that was installed down outside of Thurmont, Maryland at the high school there. A young man who was an athlete, a great student, and did well in school and was killed by a drunk driver. And the school got together with his friends and commissioned me to erect the figure of this young man. I was very honored by that. That's the kind of things we need to be doing. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely. But the General James Longstreet in 1998 was $150,000. That piece today would be close to a half mil because of the cost of the foundry going up and the foundries going down. There's fewer foundries today. Why? They're sending it to New Zealand. But that being said, the cost of sculpture is aggressive at times. There's no two ways about it. But what that sculpture can say and the feelings it can leave out there in this country are immeasurable. There's no two ways about it. And more sculpture needs to be done, and that sculpture that's out there needs to be preserved. What's happening around this country today with monuments being taken down is totally, totally asinine. You've got to check the intelligence level of these individuals because they can't change the history, so why are they taking them down? It's personal. It's very personal. So accept it, learn by it, move on. That's what sculpture can do for you if you're willing to be intelligent. Very simple. But the Gerald James Longstreet, when we were finishing this up, I sculpted it in a warehouse at Gettysburg College. And the person who approved the piece was Jamie Longstreet, the granddaughter of the general. She was really up in years at that time. And I was there in the studio talking to the boys from North Carolina. She comes in, she climbs up the ladder, and she's just as wobbly as can be. Came back down and she's crying. I looked over at Bob Thomas and I said, Bob, we got a problem. Jamie's not doing well. We must have made a mistake. She came over and she gave me a big hug. And she said, I never thought I would ever see him alive. That was acceptance and approval by blood. 
So anyone who looks at that and has a question, have a nice day <laughs> because I got it. And uh, even down to the horse. Something interesting about the horse, the author from uh, Tennessee, Shelby Foote, you all heard of Shelby. He was up in Gettysburg one day. He was talking to me. He says, Gary, I understand you got the Longstreet Commission. I said, yes, sir, I sure did. He said, I only have one request. I said, what is that, Shelby? He said, I don't want Longstreet on no damn pony. And that's why the horse I used, half Belgian, half quarter horse, wide rump, big hoof. <laughs> and that's what she is. She is a workhorse. You've got to remember one thing. All of the equestrians at Gettysburg and most other battlefields, the horses that they used were either thoroughbreds or Arabians. Thoroughbreds were here, Arabians were not. Meade sits on an Arabian. Sorry, not here, they didn't do their research. And so this is why the horses are so sleek. The problem is, if you do the research, most officers, except I'm sure that the high-grade officers, had more than one horse. Why is that? They broke them down from constant riding, day and night. Thoroughbreds won't take that, folks. Workhorses, like Longstreet sits on, would take that <laughs> because of its size and stature. So again, it's the research that you put into it. It's fascinating. Another piece of information, the uniform that you see on Longstreet here, all the gear, the saddle skirt, the portmanteau, the saddle bags, the pistols, the sword, Longstreet never had. Longstreet was a West Point graduate and detested weapons. I talked to the family. After the war, Longstreet went home and he had a hotel right north of Atlanta. And I asked them, I said, do you happen to have any of his uniform parts? Anything that he wore that day in Gettysburg? They said, no, there was a fire in the hotel and they lost all of his papers and his uniforms except for one item and this will throw you. The one item that he wore and they knew why he had it. It was a six by six foot silk scarf. What would you do with that? Simple. They put it over their shoulder, tied it up when they're riding the dusty roads to keep their uniforms clean. Common practice at that time. I did the research and I found out. It's like, wow, that blew me away. I never expected to hear that. That was the one piece of clothing they had. Well, I have copies of two letters by Confederate soldiers on the line at Gettysburg. And they say expressly what Longstreet had on that day before the charge. The one letter states, you would never know he was a general. He looked like a farm boy. He had on a shirt with suspenders, his hat, gloves, no pistols, 
no sword, no breast straps on the horse. He looked like a farmhand. What do you see? You see a fully clothed Confederate staff officer. Why is that? Now, I pride myself in research, doing it so that, once again, you are telling the true story, the real story of what this is. We approached the Park Service, and we said, here's the letter. This is the proof. This is what old Pete had on that day. This is what we wish to show to make him different than the Union officers? The answer was very simple. You do it, it will never hit the ground. Not allowed. There you have it. So, you understand the pressure, again, that a historical sculptor would have when you do your best to tell the truth and you're forced to tell a lie. Not good. Not good at all. And so it's a little hard to accept, and I understand that we all have political views and that sort of thing, but it's real and it's true. And so you have to take that and learn by it. And you'll understand then what artists go through to produce those things and the agony that goes with it at times. Because you have dreams of doing a particular piece that makes the correct statement when in fact you're forced to do something different. Interesting stuff, no doubt about that. Old Pete was well received, has done well, and a lot of individuals, when you go by there, of course we live in Gettysburg and we drive by quite a bit, there's flowers at the base, there's flags at the base, a lot of really good statements being made about it, and it is amazing. The group that commissioned me to do the piece comes back every year since 1998 to clean up the area, put wood chips around the base, and maintain the area tremendously. There is a $15,000 endowment fund on that piece. Now that endowment fund went to the Park Service to maintain that piece. If there's any problems, it needs to be refinished or, or whatever, the money's there so we can take care of that. And I try to do that with all the pieces that I do. I highly suggest that they put an endowment fund out there on them so that you can maintain those things rather than they've fallen into oblivion and going away. So that's the deal. Okay, that's old Pete. That's what we went through and that's what it is. What have I done since then and what am I working on? Well, I've done a lot of pieces around the country, everything from two coal miners down in the Greenville, Kentucky, where they make their money through coal, to the largest 9-11 memorial in the state of Kentucky. Just a number of things, like I say, around the country. But the one item that I have been working on for years, and this is what I wanted to come tonight and talk to you about, is the model sitting here on the table. It is the National Civil War Memorial. There is no national memorial anywhere in the country to the Civil War. None. Zero. Every other war 
has one. And in fact, the Gulf War is going to be getting one at the cost of $30 million. Why isn't there one to the very war that made us what we are today? I find that fascinating. Almost 20 years ago, when we did the Longstreet, I started talking to John Lanchar, the superintendent of Gettysburg, who is now retired. I said, John, where is the National Memorial? He said, I think it's out in front of the Capitol building. I said, no, that's a monument to U.S. Grant. He went back and checked, came back a few days later, and he said, my God, I can't believe it. There is none. We've got to do something about this. So what I did is immediately, you know, up here, I start designing immediately to come up with a plan. The design is what you see in front of you here, and this was done prior to the World War II memorial being erected. And I got in touch with all of the historians of the day, the noted historians, the Jim McPherson, uh, you know, Ed Bars, the whole nine yards, all the way down, 30 of them. And I talked to each one of them personally. I said, this is what we're going to do. We want to build this. We want to put together a nonprofit status organization, which we have done. It's called the National Civil War Memorial Commission. We have a website. Everything is up and running. You tell me what we need to put in that memorial so that we can tell the story, the true story the complete story, from 1861 to 1865. So I sat down and put together, shall we say, a request. They had to give me 16 civilians, 16 military leaders, 20 events that would be represented in this memorial. They came back with those names. It was fascinating. Almost every one of them, out of the 16 military and 16 civilian, the first dozen was like clockwork. They were all the same. But when you got around 12, 13, 14, it started to break up and come down into different names. And so out of those last three or four, we were able to take them because of the higher numbers and put together the total list. Well, this is what occurs. The memorial itself is 90 feet in diameter, 10 foot high granite walls, four entrances, northeast, southwest. On the east-west line is the allegorical Mason-Dixon line. That's the modern day US flag flying. Then you have the south and north entrances to the memorial would be the flags of 1861, Northern and Southern. That's the separation. At the entrance of each one of these openings, you'll have two life-size bronze figures, infantry, artillery, cavalry, naval, sorry, Air Force guys, we weren't flying. <laughs> That's right. I always say that when I do this, because it's kind of funny, but anyway. Then, of course, the entire complex is surrounded by the flags of the United States in 1865. All right. That being said, we go on the outside on each one of the columns. There are 16 civilians, portraits. 
Those portraits are of individuals that we study today, what they left behind to tell us how the war affected the civilian population. Letters, paintings, photographs, diaries, whatever it may be. We go to the inside, 16 military leaders, those leaders that affected the outcome of the war. Then we have those 20 event panels, everything from Sumter to the Battle of Gettysburg to the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, which happened during those four years. Then we go further into the center. You'll have four allegorical figures of war, hope, deprivation, that sort of thing, to the very center on a large brick plaza. Two old veterans in their reunion uniforms sitting on a park bench speaking to the children. That's the future. And this is why this project needs to happen. That's the future, folks. And I'm going to make a judgment here. I've got the same color hair as a few folk in here, I see. And I'm telling you, if we don't do it, God help us, it'll never happen. I honestly believe that because of what's happening in our schools today with the education and the history and the way it's being handled. This monument can say so much as to who we were and what we are today, and it needs to occur. We are now searching for a site. We have a couple of sites after 15 years of searching, discussing, talking, whatever, and we are very close. Once that occurs, there will be a major fundraiser at that point. Can we have two bricks laying here is simply because that'll be one of the parts of the major fundraiser are the bricks. The bricks will be uh, with a name of your relative who either served in the military or in the government of either side they will be placed in that plaza. We have room for 50,000 brick. The work itself, I have been working on this off and on in between other projects that I've had over the last 15 years. One third of the project is sculpted. It's done in my studio. All the portraits are done, 30 portraits. A few of the panels have been done, and one of the figures is completed. The History Channel has been bugging the dickens out of me for the last five years or so, begging me to get this underway. They wish to make a documentary of the building of the National Memorial. We need sight. There is a lot of controversy, but again, if we don't do it, it's not going to happen. I want you to look at this before you go. In your books that we gave you, you'll find a folder in there that explains the National Memorial. That's the background. And a little card in there about uh, the business and such that I have. We are ready to take this and blast the minute we have that site and get it underway. We've got people 
begging <laughs> to donate, to buy bricks, to do whatever, but we can't take a dime until we have the site. That's the 501c3 rule. No site, no money, period. We must have that site. We had a marketing study done by the University of Michigan, their business department. The University of Michigan came back with glowing numbers. And what they're saying is, if you place it near a historic site, they're not saying Gettysburg, they're just saying a historic site with interstate close to it for access. They estimate anywhere from three to 400,000 people a year coming to it. And Suzanne will tell you, she deals with the bus business. The bus companies all over on the place. And that being said, they estimate 14 to 18 million dollars alone dropped right in that site the first year. What's the problem? Where is that site? We are very close and we are now discussing with a couple of sites and we'll see where this goes. My goal is to have this up and running within the next few months. Suggestions, I'd love to hear it. I'm more than willing to talk. We want to get this underway. Now, we've been talking the cost of the World War I edition from New Zealand at $40 million. The latest issue with the uh, Gulf War design, it's in the shape of a sand swirl, $30 million. $5 million. What's the difference? Why is this $5 million? It tells the complete story, and yet when you walk down to the World War II Memorial, you can walk around that thing, and I'll tell you a story. I was there a few years ago, and there was two old vets there, and I felt sorry for them. One of the boys was in there, and I said, what do you think, guys? And they said, we finally got it, and we're proud, and here it comes. But it didn't say a damn thing about what it took to get it. Politically correct, simple as that. This one is not politically correct. This one tells the story, the whole story, the truth, by the historians, not me. The historians who write the books, teach the children. It's all the truth. Think about it. Just think about it. In the meantime, monuments are being taken around the country and destroying them. And I restarted an issue that I did years and years and years ago. I did a series of monument replicas at Gettysburg Battlefield. They took off like a rocket, and I sold them for about five years, and I stopped them. Well, I told Suzanne one day, I said, you know what, what's happening around this country? I think it's time to come back with the monument replicas, but we're going to redo them. Instead of producing them in a brown resin like we did before, 
Now we're going to do them in a stone resin with bronze so that they look exactly as they do on the battlefield. And there they are. That simple. We started releasing these a couple of months back. Folks, our caster can't keep up. People are so excited. We are shipping these all over the country. We even shipped an Irish brigade to Japan recently. I mean, that tells you something. Why is that? Because the love of history is out there. The respect factor and the need to take that piece. A gentleman came by the gallery a few days ago, had to have the 143rd Pennsylvania that we did. And I said, why is this? He said, I had a relative in the 143rd. I'm going to my family reunion this summer. I want that to take with me. I want to show them what my great-grandfather, the monument they put up at Gettysburg. That's the factors that are out there, and we need to build on that to keep that alive. So it's something worth considering. There you have it, the life of a historical sculptor. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry I kept you so long. Any questions? Yes, sir. Did you find any pictures of James Longstreet on horseback? No, there is none. And we knew that he did not have all the gear that's represented here because, number one, the Confederate Army didn't have the money to buy. Yes, sir. How close is this current one to the one that was sculptured, I guess, in uh, World War II? Or? The original that Helen Longstreet had done? Vastly different. Vastly different in the fact of the artistic approach. The sculptor that she commissioned back in the 30s did a, uh, I call it a nouveau riche kind of approach. It, it was very contemporary, extremely contemporary. There was really no detail. You wouldn't have known if it was Adolf Hitler or James Longstreet up there, just because of the features that they did back then of the art approach. Vastly different, yes, yes. Now, the base on the original design was huge, 15, 18 feet tall and about 20 feet long and 12, 15 feet wide. And it was deep relief carved marble of a marching army around the base, flags flying, horses, cannon. It would have cost them a million dollars today. <laughs> Forget it, yes. Were you involved in where the Longstreet statue was going to be placed? Yes, absolutely. When uh, we approached uh, the park and then when John Latchar finally said, where do you want it? We said, well, we don't know because we don't own the property. You guys do. He said, well, we have three sites. The one site is uh, where it is today in Pitcher's Woods. The other site was further down Confederate Avenue. If you know anything about Confederate Avenue, you'll cross over Millerstown Road, and then you'll have the Alabama Monument on the right side, past the little picnic area there. But you have the Alabama Monument across the road. There's an area there that kind of juts out, and there's nothing there. There's never been anything there. That was the site that was chosen by Helen Longstreet. But the Park Service said, we're not going to allow that site to be used because it's one of the few sites on the battlefield that's considered untouched. Because where the Longstreet statue stands today 
was actually the main street of the CC camp. There were buildings all over that place. And in fact, the day we went out there to do the archaeological dig, did we find bullets? No, we found a bucket full of nails, but, <laughs> but no bullets. The last site was near those picnic grounds right along Confederate Avenue, but it was spongy. And the joke was we might find old Pete in China. Uh, so we said, no, we don't want that one. So we went back to the other site. Yes, ma'am. I just want to say something. It's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to hear you speak because uh. my husband and I went up to the unveiling of the statue. Oh, very good. And it was just, it was a wonderful day. It was a wonderful day. It's exciting to hear the sculpture speak. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it's funny because I bump into people, not all the time, but a lot, who were there that day. And it's fascinating, though. It really is. We enjoyed it, no doubt about it. You didn't know that Long Street was Confederate. Yeah. You never looked from that one. That's right. Flag up, there's a corridor There's like Dixie. Yep. Like Dixie in the middle. Yep. Dixie when they left. Yep. Thoroughly Confederate day. And I will let you fill you in. I keep saying Yankee. My family served on both sides during the war, in North and South. I was born in, if you look at West Virginia, there, there's a chair there, as they say, Pennsylvania to the North, Maryland to the East. I was born right in that chair there. And my great-grandfather fought for the Potomac Home Brigade down to the base of Culp's Hill. His brother, Uncle Bill, was with the Stonewall Brigade across the field, and they were shooting at each other. So Uncle Bill came home after the war, and they started arguing right away. I mean, it, it just didn't happen. So anyway, he was there for a few months. They thought he was dead. He was there for a few months and left home and became a sheriff of Gary County, Maryland. So, and, <laughs> yes, sir. Gary, two-part question. First off, the Korean War Memorial. Yes. The sculptural figures are stainless steel. Yes. Why stainless steel? Why not bronze? That's my uh, first question. And secondly, Henry Merwin Schrady's humongous sculpture of Grant and the cavalry and the uh, artillery. If you were in charge of that design, what would you have done differently? Well, I'll start with Grant's, actually. Grant Memorial is rather imposing. It's a good piece. I'll be the first to say that. And you can ask Suzanne. I'm very outspoken when it comes to art. But it is a good, good piece, no doubt about it. It has a lot of action, a lot of motion and it's fine. I don't have any problem with it. I really don't. The um, Korean War, my oldest brother John was in Korea. The Korean monument is a bold-faced lie. If you do the research on Korea, and if you talk to anybody who was in Korea, they weren't issued the clothes they have on. They were freezing their behinds off. Men were dying from frostbite because they weren't issued the clothes they should have had. My brother was a machine gunner. I was in, you know, with Vietnam, and the one thing we talked about years later, the one difference, he had snow and I had heat. <laughs> but that particular piece I have a major problem with just because it does not tell the real story. The sculptural figures, though, stainless steel versus bronze. It could be lead, and I wouldn't have a problem with it. The figures are done well. It's what they're saying. That's the problem.
stainless steel is coming on, though, by the way. Yeah. Yes, sir. You said that it would have been too expensive to have a pedestal. Yes. Would have increased the cost tremendously. And, you know, to somebody who doesn't know anything about it, to me, a pedestal is like just a, a block of right. cement with lettering. Why would it be so expensive? Well, first of all, you'd have to do it in stone. If you were to put a pedestal under Longstreet, if you were to make that pedestal, we'll say, comparable to the other equestrian monuments at Gettysburg, the height, the size, the width, you'd add a couple hundred thousand dollars to it. American stone is extremely expensive. Now, I can get the same stone quarried, cut, and lettered from anywhere in the world. Yeah, right, even New Zealand, that's correct. And have it done, and here it comes, in China for one-third. That's it. Yes, sir. Yeah, I know you like the uh, Grant statue. Are any others that you like in Washington? Well, you know, most of the figures that are done in D.C., of course, are standing figures, and it boils down to the face, basically. They're all fairly well done. Now, the one piece that I really, really dislike, and it's not because he's black or African American. It's where it was made. Martin Luther King, thank you. It's disgusting. It is disgusting. If you look at that thing, it is disgusting, period. And they got it for a song. And it was made in China. Why are we doing this, folks? Why are we doing this, you know? But there are others that are, like the Albert Einstein figure. That's a great figure. I worked with the sculptor on placing that one in. That's a great figure. I like that one. Yeah, and it's done vastly different than the way I would do it. But that's okay. You can see it's Albert Einstein, it's just a movement, it's a great, great piece, no doubt about it. And there are other pieces out there that are just as good, there's no doubt about it. But I would say of all of the pieces in Washington, the, uh, the one piece that I dislike, we just discussed it. Thank you so much, I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you, Gary, so yep. much. Thank you. Good.